We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please turn in your Bible this morning to Esther chapter 3 for our Bible reading. Esther is about, oh, just almost a third way into your Bible, so if you crack it open around there, you might find yourself close. If you're in Nehemiah, just turn a few more pages and you'll find your way to Esther. It's just a historical remark. This book uh, we find really in history, the time in which uh, the nation of Israel is in deportation, and there is a remnant there in this area, in, in Persia. And uh, that's the time in which we find the book written, Esther. Chapter 3, though, is where we're at this morning, well into the story now. We'll begin here in verse 1, Ezra chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamathdatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. It's kind of a similar thing that we saw with, if you go back to uh, Joseph, Joseph was promoted. Also Daniel as well, a similar kind of idea. Verse 2, <clears throat> excuse me, and all, the, and all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Remember, Mordecai is the uncle of Esther. Then the king's servants who were with the king's gate, within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman, to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. That when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast her, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair. When Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. It's a pretty awful plan there, conniving here, really utter destruction of the nation of Israel. 
perhaps something similar to what we see some people want today even. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governor's, who are over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Very, very, very dark day at that time. Amen. Would you turn your Bibles, please, this morning back to Luke chapter 4. We come here uh, after uh, absence of several weeks. We were last here in Luke chapter 4 on October 29th. And we're back here today to look at part 2 of this message of Jesus' ministry in Nazareth. I had called it his ministry in Galilee, but that's the wider area that he uh, was in. We're going to just focus in on Nazareth, and we'll uh, see as he moves later on in the chapter to Capernaum and other cities in Galilee, the wider region. Jesus was tempted by Satan, as we recall from the first 13 verses of the chapter, and then it says that he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, some events are compressed out of Luke's account here. Uh, we indi- were indicating that because <clears throat> he was known about some of the things that he had done. Uh, the audience knew of some of those miraculous things, uh, turning water into wine, calling several of the disciples uh, where he had been in Capernaum before, cleaning out the temple, teaching Nicodemus, ministering in Judea, and baptizing near John the Baptist, and so on, ministering to uh, the woman at Jacob's well uh, in John chapter 4. And so news of him went out in the surrounding region, verse 14 says, and that is why, because now the prophet, the healer, the miracle worker was coming to their region once again. He taught in their synagogues, verse number 15 says, where the people were gathered. He ministered by teaching, and that's why we do teaching in extensive fashion in the church here, and and all churches should do that, teaching from God's Word. Uh, And uh, in this case, he's filling the gap left by the unauthoritative Pharisees and Sadducees. They just... uh, uh, taught as not as one with authority, but kind of rehearsing, repeating what they had been told, 
and not getting right back to the Word of God. What had happened is they'd kind of built up a lot of layers on top of the Bible, and they're teaching all of those things instead of getting right back down into, into Scripture. The Lord was honored initially. I'm just reviewing where we were last time since it's been a few weeks. And what he taught was received initially very well. What he taught was fitting with the Hebrew Bible. He was just really, in a sense, although adding new revelation, he was, in a sense, just rehearsing what was in the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist before him, the minor prophets before them, and the major prophets before them, and so on, all the way back to Moses. But as he brought new material, and as time progressed, they began to balk as he said, they liked the old better than the new. Remember that parable? And uh, he mentioned that because that was what they were doing, just hanging on to the old. Jesus was something of an itinerant preacher. He went about to different places to minister the word of God. Uh, and he is here now in Nazareth in his home country. He was brought up there. And so as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read and then sat down to teach. Uh, It's remarkable that he was able to find uh, that place in Isaiah where the scroll was perhaps even ready for him to read uh, in the 61st chapter of it, and he uh, read that. We talked a little bit about the order of service last time in the synagogue service. I won't mention that again, uh, but I do mention again that he was reading the scriptures there, and so do we do the same. The moments after his reading were um, tense, perhaps, with expectation as everyone looked at him. And you can see that in verse number 20. All the eyes of, sorry, the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them in a shocking statement, This day the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that is shocking because no Pharisee would ever say that. They would say, well, we're waiting for it to be fulfilled. We're looking for it to be fulfilled. We don't even know how it's going to be fulfilled. But Jesus said today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, how we would love to have everything else that Jesus said, we can piece together a little bit about that from what he read because he most likely explained the text that he read then following that, and uh, that's what got the people uh, listening and then riled up, as we'll see in just a few moments. So last time, what I tried to do was to just go through the text that he read and explain it a little bit more. We talked about how the Spirit of God was upon him. We saw that earlier in uh, chapter 3, particularly, and chapter 2 also, but how he came in the power of the Spirit uh, to uh, the place where he was, well, he came there to the, to the uh, temptation and out, out from there filled with the Spirit. Uh, it says that he anointed me, Isaiah does, and Jesus is saying, that's fulfilled today. He has anointed me. I am the anointed one. You know what that means, right? He's saying, I am the Christ, the one who has been anointed, the Messiah, the Mashiach. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. That is shocking. It's real, it's true, but for them it would have been quite something to to take. He was the Messiah, and he was appointed by God, anointed by God, to preach the gospel to the poor, the poor in spirit, not the poor in pocketbook. The gospel is for all, whether poor or rich, 
but he's really focusing on the spiritual condition of people. The poor in spirit, they have the gospel preached to them. He's come to uh, heal the brokenhearted, okay? those who have a contrite and broken heart. Okay? Do you know, we talked about this last time, do you know what a broken heart feels like? I'm not talking about an you know, infatuation gone sour. <laughs> I'm talking about a broken heart regarding sin before God. When you realize, I have done wickedly and I need God's forgiveness. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise, ever, ever. You bring that to him and he will, he will care for you, the broken heart. Liberty to the captives, if you commit sin, you are a slave of sin. The Lord is concerned about that kind of slavery, first of all, not about physical slavery or economic slavery uh, and, and that sort of thing. We challenged ourselves last time to, to look at ourselves and say, uh, you know, see ourselves as we really are whether we're enslaved to sin or we've been freed from sin, but we should not think that uh, we're apart from Christ, we're okay. We cannot think that because we simply are not. He says uh, he's there to reco- uh, preach recovery of sight to the blind. The Pharisees were blind. All those who are unsaved are blind. Those who are saved have recovered a good measure of sight, but... He came to give recovery of sight to the blind. Again, not physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. And by the way, spiritual blindness is more deadly than physical blindness by far. Far more important to be able to see spiritually than it is to be able to see physically, even though you might not think so in your unsaved state if that's where you're at. He came to set at liberty those who are oppressed, not oppressed under the boot of a police state or a, ty- a tyrannical government, but uh, as wrong as that is, as we said last time, to re- release those who are oppressed by the devil. What's the greatest tool of the devil's oppression? Maybe it's not the greatest tool, but it is one of the greatest tools. It's death. It's death. People are in fear of death. All our lives, Hebrews says, in fear of death. And the devil holds that over people and uses it to cause them to do crazy things. When uh, you know, you're afraid to, to die, you know, like in World War II in Germany, when, when the, the government tells you to do things against the Jewish people, otherwise you will die, and then you do those crazy things. They're holding the fear of death over you to do the the work of the devil. Whereas if you don't fear death, you say, I'm not doing that sin because I have a higher authority to whom I am accountable. And if I die, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, that's just how it's going to be. We're going to trust the Lord. And then you stand up and you say no to that wickedness. That's what we got to do today, by the way. You have to say no to wickedness. Societal wickedness, yes, but also the harder thing to say no to, and that is wickedness in your own heart, right? But yes, we do need to stand up and say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to play your pretend games. We're not going to uh, do those things that allow people to think they're okay before God when they're not okay before God and so on. And then finally, the Lord proclaimed and, and likely, as I believe, explained what he meant when he read to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord 
this acceptable year of the Lord is the messianic age. He is there to proclaim the kingdom, which he did. Remember, he said, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That kingdom, which I understand, and I hope you do as well, to refer to, uh, refers to that period of time in which the Lord will govern the earth in the millennial reign is yet future. We're not in it right now. Obviously, conditions are not uh, that way. But he was preaching the kingdom of heaven, which is at hand. He was an instrument of that preaching. John the Baptist was as well, but he, only Jesus was the one who was anointed. So he's claiming to be the Messiah, and that's unmistakable because only the Messiah could do the things that are spoken of in Isaiah chapter 61. Now, new material here we didn't get to last time. Initially, the synagogue goers were very favorable to what uh, Jesus was speaking. They heard his preaching, and it is fulfilled right there before you. And, and perhaps some of them are thinking, boy, this is a great privilege for us. This is tremendous. But they were either confused or envious or offended because Jesus was the son of Joseph. Isn't this the son of Joseph? A very unremarkable fellow with an unremarkable upbringing, with a socioeconomic status just like ours. How now does he have this ministry? Where does he think he gets this stuff from? Not trained by the religious establishment, not a teaching priest. Maybe he thought, maybe they thought, not he thought, but maybe they thought him to be a goody two-shoes a child who grew up in their community and never did anything wrong. How can he promise deliverance who himself, they would think, needed that deliverance from poverty, from Rome, and from Nazareth itself? I mean, what good thing comes out of Nazareth? We're just a nobody, nothing community in the nation of Israel. So the atmosphere quickly turns dark in the room as the Lord is teaching. And so Jesus carries on with his teaching in light of their impending rejection of what he says. And so he prophesies in a way next. Look at verse number um, 23. He says to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Gave a little bit of an illustration about that last time, just a kind of humorous one, nothing super serious. But um, he prophesies that the people, speaking in the large Jews as a solidarity with one another as a whole nation, will tell him to heal himself and do those same works that he's done in Capernaum. Jesus had set up kind of a home base in Capernaum and had done some ministry there, which was well-known, like healing a nobleman's son and turning the water into wine. Uh, Nathaniel, the disciple, was from Cana, John 21 tells us. But the part about healing yourself, what does that call forth in your mind? Heal yourself. Matthew chapter 27 and verse uh, 42 might bring this to your memory. It says, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we 
will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Hmm. Or Mark uh, 15.30 gives us a similar sentiment here. Save yourself and come down from the cross. That's the words of the crowd to the one hanging upon a cross. Now, from Jewish history, Jesus gives two illustrations that do two things, really, that heighten their wrath against him and also heighten their condemnation. He's going to speak about the widow of Zarephath and Sidon and Naaman the Syrian. Now, I thought this was remarkable that he could do this live in real time. This is an unfolding situation, and they're beginning to turn against him. He knows that. He knows what's in man, right? He knows what's in the heart of every man. And so he can see perhaps the majority or a good number of the people in the room are, are, are turning against him in their thoughts. Their faces are becoming hard. And so he tells, he, he doesn't, almost doesn't like de-escalate the situation, you know, almost kind of escalates it. And that's why I say he heightens their, their wrath and their condemnation because he's making a point to them that they need to hear, and I think we need to hear as well this morning. He does this as the situation unfolds dynamically. Now, both people that he speaks of were Gentiles. Look, let's read in verse number 24. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And then he's going to give two illustrations, and really the illustrations almost focus more on the prophets than they do on the people who were helped. I tell you the truth, or tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, none of them in the land of Israel, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, okay, another prophet. Neither of these prophets were accepted in his own country. That's the point. But it, by referencing those that they did help or those that God helped through them, he's going to elicit something from the audience in the synagogue. None of those lepers in Israel were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Those prophets were rejected by their own people. Elijah and Elisha. You have to go back to 1 Kings and 2 Kings to review about these guys. One of the benefits of being in a church that teaches through the whole Bible and teaches our children from the very beginning all the way through is that they understand when they read this passage. Okay, I remember a little bit something about Naaman, and I remember you know, about this widow of Zarephath and the oil and the, all of that uh, that she had. Uh, But thinking of Elijah and Elisha, the prophets, why did they have to go out and bless people outside of the nation of Israel? Well, they they should have been embraced by the people inside of the nation of Israel, shouldn't they? Um, Think of Ahab and Jezebel. Remember after Elijah had that great victory on Mount Carmel? What did they want to do? Jezebel wanted to kill him. Nice way to treat a prophet. Uh, Do you remember the young men who mocked Elisha? Has that... that text ever puzzled you before? Like, what, what's Elisha? I mean, is he a child abuser because he, you know, sent these bears to go maul these children? Remember that passage? What were those guys saying? 
What were those young people saying? I don't think they were like six-year-olds, okay? Let's not, let's not go there, okay? These are older, probably young people, older teenagers, and they're blasphemers. They're saying to him, get out of here, Elisha. We don't want you. Go up, you bald head. It, it, uh, disrespects his age, which is not supposed to be something that young people do. And go up means you go do what Elijah did. You go up there and get out of here. That was an attack on the, on the minister of God, and God was not having it at that time. The two Gentile examples here, the two prophets, Jewish prophets and Gentile examples of blessing, point out the shameful condition of the Israelites at that time. The prophets should have been embraced by the Jewish people, northern and southern kingdoms, but they were not embraced, and so God did not bless the people of Israel because of that. God expected his people to hear the prophets that he sent, not to dismiss them. So instead, God sent his prophets to help some Gentiles. And I wonder if he did that like, listen, we talk about God causing the Jews to stumble to be a blessing to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to salvation across the span of time in the church era. God's wisdom in turning away from people who reject him toward others may bring them along in jealousy uh, on the coattails of that. The brief account of the widow of Zarephath is recorded in 1 Kings 17. God had told Ahab through Elijah that there would be no rain for three years. Such a drought and the resulting famine was a sign of God's judgment on the nation of Israel. Remember, God told them, if you obey me, what will happen agriculturally for you? The ground will give forth plentifully, your, your vineyards, the wells, the animals, your family, your wives, your children, everything will be blessed. Obviously, they were not in a period of blessing. God directed Elijah rather to go to a widow woman for provision after the famine became more severe. And the text tells us in 1 Kings 17, God commanded that woman to provide for Elijah, even though the woman had nothing to provide for him. He provided the command and he provided the means, the miraculous means of a never-ending flour bin and a bottomless oil cruise that would not run out of oil so that they could continue to make bread to be able to live. She, her son, and Elijah survived on that food for the duration of the drought. Elijah also helped the woman when her son died, raised that son back to life. And the text tells us the woman, after receiving her son back to life, said, now I know that Elijah is a man of God and that the word of God is in his mouth. Now, just hold on to that thought, okay? I know that he's a man of God and that he has God's word in his mouth. Then Naaman the Syrian, this is in 2 Kings 5, sometime later, he was a soldier healed by Elisha from his leprosy. And Elisha provided that solution to his leprosy, which, you know, Naaman went to his commander, his, his king, and then they sent him to the king of Israel and said, hey, I sent you Naaman to heal my servant of, of uh, leprosy. And the king is like, oh, how do I do that? You know, he's like, oh, he's looking for a, a cause against us. And, and uh, Elisha said, no, send him to me. I'll take care of it. Now, Naaman responded very poorly at first to the instructions, remember? 
I, you know, he, I, could go, I could go take a shower in my own bathroom and not have to go to, you know, this dirty water of the River Jordan kind of thing. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, but, you know, I could go to my own rivers and wash. But uh, his, his uh, servants talked some sense into him and his attitude turned around. And, and after he was healed, listen, he replied that he now knew that there was no God in all the earth except in Israel. Both of those accounts are very fascinating because the Lord is weaving together this no prophet is without honor except in his own country. Elijah and Elisha were not honored in their country, so God sent them to farther away places to bless Naaman or to the widow of Zarephath and Sidon and teach those people something about God, that there's God's minister with God's message and there's only one true and living God. And what the widow and the soldier learned were key lessons that the children of Israel themselves needed to learn regarding Jesus. He was a man of God, more than that. He was the word of he had the word of God in his mouth. In fact, he was the word of God. And he was a representative of the, of the one true God in Israel. All of these truths should have commanded the respect of the synagogue attenders and the submission of them to his teaching. These truths also command the respect of us postmodern types as well. Because despite all of our learning, we have the exact same nature that these Israelites had. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to sin how I want to sin. I'm going to run my life how I want to run my life. I don't want him telling me that I'm poor and oppressed and, and, and enslaved and I need to be saved from that and I need to be rescued and released from oppression and set at liberty and tell me that I need to have a broken heart. I don't have a broken heart. I have a proud heart. That's how our thinking is. The reference to the hard-hearted forefathers in Israel should have caused the present-day Jews to respond with reflection and repentance. Like, it's kind of an easy thought, it seems to me, to say, look, they did stupid things. God was angry with them. I don't want to be like them. What's so hard about that? But they were triggered in another direction. The accusation of sin on the part of their forefathers didn't, didn't, didn't trigger a broken heart. It triggered a hard heart. It hardened their hearts. And also the favorable mention of the Gentiles, the people in the synagogue couldn't stand. That was another opening of a window into their heart of racist or ethnocentric thought combined with religious self-righteousness. Now listen, when you have religious self-righteousness and ethnocentrism, you have a very dangerous combination. And that's what they had. Um, I'll share a couple of verses that connect uh, this idea. Acts chapter 13, 46, this is the Apostle Paul preaching. Um, and they say, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first here in the synagogue, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. 
They glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. So, in other words, the pattern continues. The Jews rejected God sent his instruments to the Gentiles. There's another instance of this which kind of highlights a little bit of the ethnocentrism in it. In Acts 22, Paul's giving his testimony to the large crowd that just was trying to kill him. And uh, he talks about how he met uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus and all of that. And then uh, it says how Jesus said to him, Depart from here, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they, that is the crowd, listened to him until this word, Gentiles. Gentiles was like a, that trigger that just threw them into a frenzy. They couldn't take it. Gentiles are dogs. They're pagan idolaters. We're self-righteous. We're God's people. We're so good. I did take some time to notice on the positive side that Jesus is not hesitant to mention Gentiles favorably, even from this very early portion of his ministry. His salvation is for all people, not just for Jewish people. If the Jews reject, there are always Gentiles who will listen. God will see to that. In fact, it's part of God's ultra-wise plan, as I indicated earlier, to use the interplay between Israel and the Gentiles to bless and provoke so as to move his program of salvation along. Romans 11 teaches us that. And I was interested when I came upon this thought about the favorable mention of God's work toward the Gentiles, even as a result of the rejection of the Jewish people of his ministers, that the Bible records God's grace to many Gentile believers, I'm sorry, many individual Gentiles, many of whom became believers, as well as to the Gentiles as a whole. I went through the scriptures and I found as many as I could instances of God helping Gentile people to show that God is not ethnocentric in this way. There is a special place for the nation of Israel, an assigned, dedicated, functional place for them, but there's also a place in God's work for Gentile people, of whom most of us are. He helped not only the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. Do you remember the centurion and his servant who was about to die? Do you remember Rahab, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the woman at the well in John chapter 4? She was a Samaritan, don't know exactly what her ethnic makeup was, but she wasn't a Jew as a Jew. I mean, the Jews didn't look at her as a Jew. The Syrophoenician woman and her daughter, remember how she said, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table. Yeah, your focus is on your people, but I'm, I'm a person too. <laughs> The Ninevites heard the preaching of Jonah and repented, at least for a time. Zipporah, a Gentile, was married to Moses and most likely blessed through that relationship. The Magi who came to visit Jesus. Theophilus likely was a Gentile, the recipient of Luke and the book of Acts. Hanan, the son of Nahash, was an Ammonite king who died, and David wanted to show kindness to, his, uh, to, to, to Hanan, the son of Nahash, the king who died. Abimelech, Genesis 20, God restrained his sin. Hiram, the king of Tyre, and his son through David was blessed by God. It's a funny one. The Aramean raiders that came and Elisha showed his servant the, the armies of the Lord around them and he took these 
these guys became blind and he took them right back to uh, Samaria. The queen of Sheba was blessed through Solomon. The Gadarene demoniacs were healed. They're on the other side of the, of the uh, Sea of Galilee. The Samaritan leper was one of ten who came back to thank the Lord. Where are the other nine? You know, when we come to Thanksgiving, where, if the hundred people are blessed by God, why are there only five that are giving him thanks? The Gibeonites, well, they used a little deception, but God was kind to them because they knew what was going to happen to them. They were, in effect, saying, we've got to use some clever means to submit ourselves under the, the rule of God and his people, otherwise we're going to be killed. The Ethiopian eunuch was saved on the way back home from Jerusalem. Lydia, a seller of purple, was, had her heart opened by God. The Philippian jailer was saved by a midnight song service. Pharaoh was blessed through Joseph. Solomon was used by God to bless the Lebanese king. Daniel was a blessing to Nebuchadnezzar. Esther helped Xerxes I. Nehemiah was a blessing and a help to King Artaxerxes, his cupbearer. Ruth the Moabitess through Boaz was blessed by God. Titus was a Greek and he was saved. Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian who helped Jeremiah out of the pit by lowering the rope down. And God promised him, you will not die in this incursion of the Babylonians into the city. God's given him his life. Sergius Paulus was saved, ministered to by the Apostle Paul. The father of Publius was healed on Malta. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Damaris were saved in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And many of Paul's co-workers and friends, I didn't go through the whole list, there's dozens of them in Romans and elsewhere, named in the epistles. God cares for the Gentiles, and I certainly am grateful for that. Uh, let me just share one verse uh, have scant time to go over all the rest of these. I've listed almost three dozen scriptures here that you can go over that are like this, Isaiah 49, 6. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. In other words, what God is saying is, that's a big job, but that's not big enough for you. You, Messiah, the light of God will also lighten the Gentiles. Read the rest of verse 6. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. Well, there are other verses that are, uh, that are like that. Isaiah 42, 6 is another one. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I, the Lord, that is my name and my glory I will not give to another. And thus says another almost three dozen verses or sections of the scripture that God is working with the Gentiles. It's too small of a thing for for Jesus just to come and save his own people, the Jews. He's going to be salvation to the ends of the earth because his work is so tremendous, it's so magnanimous, it's so huge. Back to Luke chapter 4. The response to Jesus here in the synagogue in Nazareth of Galilee calls to mind Stephen's preaching in Acts chapter 7. 
at the end of the chapter there, the end of his preaching, right before he's killed, he reviews Israelite history and he calls the Jews stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. They resisted the spirit, they persecuted the prophets, and killed those who foretold of the coming Messiah. Those are just the facts. Why can't they just accept the facts? They're the ones who say, we believe in Jeremiah today. But what did the forefathers do to Jeremiah? Threw him down into a pit where he sunk down into the mire. His life was saved when Ebed Melech came and let down a rope and put some rags on and put him under his arms and lifted him out. That was just one example. They wouldn't listen to him. The official response to Jeremiah was very terrible. So the synagogue goers here in Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, are filled with wrath, verse 28. You know, the scripture says, uh, in the context of the proclamation of God's word, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. That wasn't the case here. They were quick to wrath, they didn't listen, and they spoke out of turn. It says they rose up and they thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Talk about how to, you know, treating a guest speaker. Should treat him to lunch, not throw him off the edge of the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. They were not mildly irritated, they were enraged. They forced Jesus out, tried to throw him off the cliff. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it, that they would have that kind of response to the truth. But that's only the beginning of the depraved response to Jesus. That depraved response in this era would lead them to turn him over to the Romans and get him killed. And that depraved response continues even now down to this day. Check yourself as you listen to these words. If you're getting hot under the collar right now, because God, I've told you, views you as a sinner, then you're responding just like the hard-hearted audience of this passage. If you are angry at the messenger, what that really means is that you're rejecting God, because I'm just recounting what Scripture says, and Scripture is God's word, not mine. Please don't repeat the same error uh, as these unbelieving synagogue attenders. You know, they weren't very religious after all, were they? What religious person goes about driving somebody out of their church service to try to kill them? That's not very religious. (laughs) It's not righteous at all. Okay, They were so deceived, so hard-hearted, they wanted to murder a man. Now, something struck me as I was thinking about this section as we draw to a conclusion The rejection of Jesus is not an abstract or theoretical ghosting. You cannot hide from your responsibility before God like you click the unfriend button on one of your social media accounts. It's not like you can say, click unfriend God. I'm just going to ignore God. I'm just going to go on with my own life and... No worries. You know, it's like you put God in this box out here in your life. It's so abstract and so theoretical 
you compartmentalize yourself away from him. But you cannot hide from God. You're re- and, and listen, when you do that, you know, that, you know, that unclick, the reason you can do that so easily is because you're not looking the person in the face. You're not saying to that person, you know, listen, I am no longer your friend. It's so much easier to be at the computer not looking at the person in real time and just say click or tap with your finger. I'm done listening to that person, you know. I'm not going to follow them anymore. I'm not going to hear their stuff. I don't want to see them. Your rejection of Jesus is personal. Just like I illustrated with my brother here, say that, that would be personal, you know, much different than just in an abstract on the computer clicking a button. Your rejection of Jesus is personal, like face to face. It's interpersonal between you and him. It's harsh because you're rejecting someone who expressed concern for your soul and even died. So you could have forgiveness, righteousness, freedom from the slavery to sin, and eternal life. You're saying to that person, unfriend. No, you're not saying unfriend. You're saying to their face, I don't care for you. I don't care what you've done for me. I say this because I'm trying to help perhaps some who might listen and it's, it's, I think it's edifying for believers, too, because it helps us to be thankful for what God has done for us. But to help us to diagnose the real central problem that we have in our hearts. Um, Norman, or Norville Geldenheis is a commentator, older commentator on Luke, and I'll read something that he wrote that I think was very helpful as we conclude. No one will ever be able to do much for mankind unless he has a deep realization of the terrible need of the human race. Now, Jesus knew, as I said before, what is in man. He knew what the need of the race was. He knew, and he was using his, all of his divine wisdom to try to elicit from them a response of repentance. Don't treat me, in a sense, he's saying, like you treated Elijah and Elisha, but I know it's going to be just like it was then. No prophet is without honor except in his own country, you know, in, in, in his own country. And so he's trying to help them to get to the bottom of their hearts and realize their depravity that's there. Uh, Geldenheis writes, an imperfect insight into the actual needs and misery of man, an imperfect insight into that results in giving inadequate prescriptions for finding relief. Isn't that the world today? They don't have a good insight into what man is all about with the human heart and all of its wickedness, and so they can only give Band-Aid solutions for the problems that we have. Now, it is characteristic of the Savior's preaching that he referred in a remarkably plain manner to the unfathomable spiritual need of mankind. This appears especially in the words of Isaiah, which he quoted in the synagogue at Nazareth and to which he attached the deepest meaning. He points to the condition of man as one of spiritual poverty, brokenheartedness, captivity, blindness, and mutilation. And then you know what happened? I'm I'm, I'm going off to the side of the comment for a moment. He then proved it by showing the depravity of the hearts of the audience that he was with. And he showed them that they were spiritually bankrupt, broken, captive, blind, and mutilated. This spiritual distress is is caused by the sin of mankind, the commentator continues. For sin makes man inwardly poor, sows destruction in his heart and life, makes him a captive in its stranglehold, 
makes him spiritually blind so that he loses all vision and all power of clear judgment and crushes his personality. How necessary and glorious, therefore, are the words of the Lord by which he assures us that he came not merely to preach a solution of the problem, but to bring the deliverance himself, yea, even to be the Redeemer in his own person. Through him, God's work of redemption is actualized. I was thinking of an illustration that might help what was happening in the hearts of these people. You know, have you ever heard of somebody who, is, uh, who does not believe in modern medicine or, or the application of it? Or they, they say, look, we, can't, we, we will not do these kinds of treatments, and they, they withhold themselves, and they're very a theologically poor basis for it. Um, and they insist, you know, we have to do this naturally and as if God using doctors is not natural at all. They see that there is a solution, a medicine, a machine, a treatment, a therapy that could help them. And they say, nope, not for me. Tragic, isn't it? And then sometimes, especially in those cases when parents do that for children, the children die. It's just terrible. They see the solution. They don't take the solution to their own hurt. That's the medical analogy, the spiritual reality. People see the solution. They hear the solution. It's proven out to work in many people's lives around them, and they say, no thanks. I'll do my own thing, and they will die because they don't take the remedy of the great physician that is offered to them. Please don't be like that. Don't be dumb like that, okay? Eternity is at stake. Your heart needs Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to receive great, uh, to receive the, the great solution, the great medicine that we need for our souls. I pray you'd work in our hearts today. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.